Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. At the National Science Foundation, artificial intelligence has become a high-priority agenda item. Recently, it appointed a new special assistant to the director to focus on AI. That assistant, Tess DeBlanc-Knowles, joins me now. Ms. DeBlanc-Knowles, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell us what this job is all about. You have another job already at NSF, and we'll get into that, but now you're special assistant to the director for artificial intelligence. That sounds like AI matters a lot around there. It does, yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to start out with the point that NSF has long played a really significant role in sustaining AI research in the United States. NSF investments were instrumental in the development of machine learning, reinforcement learning approaches that are really at the core of today's large language models. And today, NSF's support for the field totals more than $800 million annually. And this funds innovation activities across 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, through support for things like research projects, institutes, fellowships and traineeship opportunities, education and research infrastructure. And we support the whole pipeline of innovation. So from foundational discoveries to the applied work of applying AI to other fields like agriculture, education, climate issues. And we also support the really critical work to advance trustworthy AI. And that it's really important as increasingly AI products are coming to market, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in the research space to advance the verifiability and the reliability of AI systems. And then we also support researchers as they move their ideas to market kind of along that full pipeline of translation in terms of developing the idea, the business plan, and then supporting startups. And then our programs also support some of these foundational elements that are critical for our AI innovation ecosystem. So we play a pivotal role in supporting education and training from K through 12 education to uh, making experiential learning opportunities available to advanced education. And then we facilitate access to the research infrastructure and really do this all at a really national scale, making sure that those opportunities are available for all Americans. So my role in this is focused on facilitating coordination across these many AI initiatives that we have underway, and then also ensuring timely implementation of NSF's task in the recent AI executive order released by the administration. And, you know, it used to be the case that our AI funding was almost all focused through our computer science and engineering directorate. But now you see that AI applications, AI initiatives are being funded across our eight directorates. And I think this really reflects the importance of AI across areas of science and engineering. And that's something that we want to continue to double down on. So your job then is to what? Make sure that all of the eight directorates that have a piece of AI are operating in some sort of consonance with one another? That's right. So we can take a really whole of foundation approach to all of these issues because it's really hard to kind of just separate one portion of AI when it really touches so many areas of our computer science or social behavioral engineering directorate or our engineering directorate. And kind of each of these areas of research have roles to play not only in the future of AI technology itself, but in the application of AI to really drive scientific discovery and innovation. And there is so much talk about AI, and every day you hear about another deployment, either in industry or even in government, of AI algorithms to do something or other. And so you might get the impression that it's all done. It's just a matter of deployment now and making sure you do it right. I guess maybe that's not really the case. What are some of the research areas in particular? What's yet to be developed and explored in AI? Yeah, and I think that's an important point because, you know, I think that we're all so impressed by the capabilities of today's generative AI systems. It's 
supremely impressive on how far they've come in and what they can do. But we still have a lot of work to do as a research community to advance some of these foundational capabilities of AI. So like perception, representation, learning, and importantly, reasoning. And these are all the capabilities that are going to really expand our ability to harness AI for some of these kind of big potential application areas and uses that we see. And particularly, you know, in how we can use AI systems kind of in tandem and in collaboration with humans in the tasks that we want to take on. And I mentioned it before, but there's also really critical work needed to make AI more reliable and transparent and really to provide assurances related to the performance of the model as well as its safety. And this is increasingly important as AI is being deployed to market. And we really need to advance our ability to assure model behavior, align that behavior with human values and safety guardrails. And then we need reliable methods to continue to test and continue that assurance as a model learns, as it develops and it's deployed. And then importantly, as it's integrated into AI systems of systems as this becomes more complicated, this question of assuring behavior and trusting the behavior of the AI system becomes even more complicated and critical. And then just one last piece I'll mention is really how critical I think it is to advance the application of AI to other fields of science and engineering, and really to try to apply AI to some of these big challenge problems like environmental, sustainability, um, agriculture production, healthcare. There's really a lot of untapped potential here that our research community can help move forward on. We're speaking with Tess de Blanc-Knowles. She is newly appointed as Special Assistant to the Director for Artificial Intelligence at the National Science Foundation. And you mentioned reasoning a moment ago as an area of research. And if you look at the large language models, really how they work, it's basically highfalutin pattern recognition and reproduction. So they're really more mimicry than reason. I mean, if you just take away all the fancy verbiage, what does reason, and is that something possible in the field of AI, the same way traveling at the speed of light is for rocket ships? Yeah. And I think it's still to be determined if we can develop an artificial intelligence system that can reason in the way that humans reason. But that's one of the areas where it's really critical for NSF investments. You know, there's no market incentive for a private sector company to invest in this big question of, you know, can we get these systems to reason? But that's where NSF is investing across these kind of foundational areas of AI, kind of pushing the frontiers around, if we could get systems to reason, how would we go about doing it? And we're kind of making those bets across different areas that we think that's going to lay the foundation for the next breakthrough that might not come from these big machine sure. learning based large models. And for those receiving such grants, I mean, I would think there need to be a lot of oversight to make sure that they're not doing the artificial intelligence equivalent of Theranos which never did really have the technology it said it would. People went to jail and they mimicked it and sort of made it look as if something was going on in this box when it really wasn't. I would think that's a big danger for the grant makers. Yeah. And, you know, NSF has a really well-oiled merit review process. So even from the very beginning of the grant process, when researchers are putting their proposals to NSF, it goes through a really rigorous process in which each proposal is reviewed by a panel of experts from the community that kind of, you know, kicks the tires on, you know, do we even think that this is feasible? Is this a, a worthwhile um, technical path to go down? And then each of the program directors oversees the program if it is chosen to be awarded 
we do a lot of work, particularly with the AI community around thinking through early in the project, some of the ethical implications and building that into some of the reporting processes as well. And what do you bring to this? You just came out of the White House where you were a couple of years at Office of Science and Technology Policy. There seems to be a theme here in what you've done in the government. That's right. Yeah. So I actually, I started my career in national security, but moved into the AI space around five years ago through a position at the National Security Commission on AI. And so what I bring, particularly to the work that NSF does, is this kind of national picture of our policy environment, kind of some of the big levers that we're moving towards as a country, and trying to integrate our efforts so that we are aligning with these big pushes in terms of what we need to do to make sure that we have this really strong national AI innovation environment, which is really the foundation for economic growth, for continuing to push the technology forward for national security capabilities. So I strongly believe that this is kind of the critical ingredient for our AI future. So I'm bringing that perspective, knowledge of the policy environment, and helping integrate our activities and so they can plug into a lot of these national efforts. Yeah, this is really one of those fields that is not just commercial or just military. It's not like right. developing a tank, which has no commercial application, we hope. We'd all like to drive one through a parking lot sometimes. But <laughs> AI is really a blanket almost for every domain. Fair to say? Yes, I think that's very fair to say. I think it's one of these quintessential dual purpose technologies that, you know, the very essence of the technology can be used in so many different application environments, which I think is why it's so exciting. That's also why there are so many risks and considerations around AI and how we safely integrate it into all of these different domains and applications. And I think that's why, you know, Folks are so excited about it. They're also worried about it because it's going to have this impact across scientific domains, application areas, all parts of life, really. And when you do a Google search and you get their newly generated AI large language model answer at the top of the screen, do you believe it? <laughs> Sometimes, but I like to double check. I think as with all of these large language models, it's great to get inspiration from them, but always prudent to check answers. Tess DeBlanc-Knowles is Special Assistant to the Director for Artificial Intelligence at the National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to it probably won't so by building programs including leadership development programs including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs that's what's really key for I think for our agency and particularly me in this role um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role so I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.